Welcome back to Generals and Napoleon, episode 65, Dr. Larry and medical care during the Napoleonic age. Before we begin, I'd like to remind all of our listeners and supporters that if you'd like to donate to the show monetarily, please go to patreon.com forward slash generals and Napoleon, where we have ad-free content and bonus episodes. If you'd like to support the podcast non-monetarily, please give us a follow on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or anywhere podcasts are heard. And if you're feeling extra generous, please give us a positive rating on those listening platforms. Now, on with the show. I am super excited for this episode. I have a very special guest, uh, Mick Crumplin, who's a retired general surgeon uh, over in England. He's written five books on hospital care during uh, during the Napoleonic era, and we have him on the line today, and we're happy to have him. How are you, Mick? I'm fine, thanks, uh, John. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure, my pleasure. Um, yeah, like I said, uh, Mick has uh, written several books on the hospital care and uh, medical care during the Napoleonic period, which you can find on Amazon. How did you kind of get into studying that period? Nobody had really put together the human aspects of conflict, surgery and medicine in this period in a big way. There have been bits and pieces Mm -hmm. written, but it really needed pulling together. And I think surgery is essentially a pragmatic subject. And so I love the instruments, the wounds, the challenges, and how they managed with the lack of information that we have today. Indeed. And the gentleman we're going to discuss today, he really was a trailblazer, was he not, Dr. Leray? He was. What do you think, well, I guess we can kind of get into this, but I, I think it's hard for people to comprehend medical care and hospital care at this time was so... I don't want to use the word archaic, but it was obviously it's not what we have today. How would you describe medical care of battlefield wounds and injuries during this time? Well, I think you can imagine that medical care at these times in the face of ignorance, poor hygiene, lack of good nursing care, uh, anesthesia, lack of antiseptic practice, also delay in removing men who are sick or injured from the battle area was at best primitive with appalling outcomes. Pain relief almost totally inadequate and prolonged waiting on the field resulted in fatal hemorrhages and inevitable sepsis. And there was no proper triage or evacuation process. And only in the mid 18th century was some talk uh, of some protection in Europe with sanctuary given to the wounded soldiers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just think it's fascinating. Um... You know, and, and not only that, you know, the threat of disease. I know during Napoleon's invasion uh, of Russia, a great many of his soldiers was not taken down by weather or bullets, but by typhus. Yeah, and climate. Yep, yep, and climate. That's right. Well, uh, let's dive in because I'm, I'm really excited to talk about uh, Larry, and he just really strikes me as one of the more noble characters um, during this era. He was born... Uh, in July 1776 in France near the Pyrenees region of Spain. But he was not born into a noble family and it was orphaned at age 13. Can you tell us a bit about his upbringing? Yeah, he was uh, born in the little French town of Baudin in the foothills of the Pyrenees to the north. And the Larrays were a fairly humble family, I guess, living in quite a remote area. 
Jean, Dominic Jean was born just three years after the Seven Years' War. And his great-grandfather, Jean-Francois, was a surgeon at Tarbes to the north uh, in that region. And one of his sons was Dominique, a surgeon in Tarbes. Uh, his other son was a farmer, and that was Dominique's grandfather, who had two sons, and Uncle Alexis became a surgeon at St. Joseph's Hospital in Toulouse. That was Dominique Larre's uncle, and his father became a master shoemaker. He was in poor health, but he brought up his children at local schools. He had a sister uh, and a brother. Uh, so Jean-Dominique was uh, educated at the village school run by the priest, Abbe Grasseur, and imbibed with good, solid Christian principles, Larry was predictably a curious boy with a true love of his surroundings, helping in the workshop, doing chores and wa walking miles with his mother to Bagné de Bigorre, which was a town with a market. And she regaled her sons with stories and practical, homely and rural knowledge. But sadly, uh, Dominique's father died and he was 13 only, uh, his, his son, in the spring of 1780. So Larry was sent to Toulouse to learn medicine mm -hmm. and Uncle Alexis. And his primary education was rather lacking. So he was sent to a college called Esquil College. And thereafter, Alexis at Toulouse taught in the crafts of medicine. And at 19, Larry won the first student prize at the hospital. And at 20, a year later, he won the first prize to become a house surgeon and soon wrote a thesis on bone tuberculosis. Right. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. You know, he, like you mentioned, he completed a very rigorous apprenticeship and then became a surgeon in the Navy. And uh, at the age of 21, he was deployed to Newfoundland in Canada, where he became the youngest surgeon in the French Royal Navy. Do you think he was just, you mentioned he was curious, was he exceptionally bright or hardworking or both? I think both of these. He, he obviously was a good student and a committed uh, learner and had a lot to gain and obviously had seen uh, his various relatives do well, no doubt. But anyway, after a year in Toulouse, Larry longed to do more and expand his practice. Um, and he was being gradually consumed, I gather, with a burgeoning Republican spirit. So he walked mm -hmm. to Paris with his uncle's patronage and enrolled in a course of lectures at the Hotel Dieu hospital wow. in Paris under the great Pierre Desault. Oh, yeah. yeah, the impoverished yeah. Larry failed to get any job at Les Invalides and sought advice of a patron, Antoine Louis, Secretary of the Royal Academy of Surgery. And he told him that there were jobs coming up to appoint naval surgeons in Brest. So Larry and a friend went to Brest and en route, they made an important visit to a little village of Bourg-Hesson, Ambroise Paré's birthplace. Paré was an exemplar surgeon in the 16th century who did mm. many great things, and Larry wanted to be like him, I guess. So he was uh, innovative, intelligent, and at the siege of Metz in 1552, the people realised they stood a chance of survival with this great surgeon in their presence. And I think that's what Larry wanted to do. So... He was disappointed when he got to Brest because all the naval appointments were cancelled. But mm -hmm. after he, he got a bit of money sort of teaching students anatomy and surgery. And he was appointed to the 18-gun sloop, the Vigilante, which in the spring of 1787 sailed off on fishery and commercial protection duties. Right. He seemed to be hardworking, dutiful and mindful of responsibilities, checked his ship out, saw he had the correct stuff on board. And... Ignorant of the cause of scurvy at this time, 
uh, he saw to it that the sailors drank water and vinegar, which was the accepted uh, treatment or prevention at that time. And he ended up with only 24 of the 123 on the sick list. Most of them were scorbutic, suffering from scurvy. Anyway, he managed a couple of small outbreaks of typhus and smallpox, and he came back after six months landing at Brest to make his way back to Paris. Yeah, he gets back to Paris in 1789, just in time for the French Revolution. Um, he allegedly improvised an ambulance to treat the wounded at the storming of the Bastille. Do you think he supported the revolution itself or just the freedom of ideas that came with it? Well, he now had some money and Desault took him on as a trainee before the Bastille was stormed. He attended mm -hmm. board patients and lectures. And one surgeon at the Anvalide Hospital in Paris impressed him greatly, a guy called Raphael Sabatier. And through improper patronage, Larry failed to get the post of an assistant surgeon at the Hotel Dieu, which was an important hospital in Paris. But in July 1789, the city, as you know, erupted in revolutionary fervor. And Larry, believing strongly in equality and fairness and the reward of uh, hard work, uh, being a right to privilege. So as a supporter of the revolution, he helped other students raid an arsenal. And with an armed band of around 1,500 students and other people, he got involved in the assault on the Bastille and soon was helping back in hospital with Desault with clearing up the casualties. That was his first experience of conflict surgery. Mm. Cleaning up wounds, removing in-driven debris was part of his and other surgeons' repertoire. That's a forerunner of what we call debridement. Here, under Desault, Larry started to learn about the severe consequences of delayed amputation, and yet he admired Desault as a surgeon. 1781, he met his future wife and supported in his marriage proposal because he'd got nothing to offer her, as it were, at that time. And um, with this fired-up, massive citizen army, burgeoning army, uh, his declaration of war on Prussia and Austria, uh, mm. constructed into the army of the Rhine, Surgeon Major Larry set off to war. Yeah, and uh, he serves at the front lines of the Army of the Rhine during the War of the First Coalition. It was during this time that he developed the idea of the modern field army surgery with field hospitals and ambulance corps. Was this a radically different concept than what came before this period? Yes, it was, because don't forget all the casualties had delay. The battle had to be over before they were properly collected and so forth. What soldiers need is confidence in their care when they're fighting on the front. It's a huge morale boost. And, um, and the soldier citizens of the New Republic, their care was paramount. Failure in these duties could be punished severely. Mm. And in 1792, the victory at Valmy established the highly motivated French citizen army, living off the land with an endless mm. of recruits. But casualties were ill cared for, and Larry posted to the rear was so frustrated by all this, he things had to change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he um, he, I think he just thought down and, and thought about how I can make things better. And one of the innovations he came up with was so-called flying ambulances. And I read that after seeing the speed of the flying artillery that the French army used, you know, basically cannons hauled around by horses. Larry kind of modeled this rapid transport of the wounded with train drivers and litter bearers. 
um, I think the Battle of Metz was in 1793 was the first time he proved the value of this system? Well, as the conflicts with the Republican army against its nervous uh, Bourbon-supporting allies raged on and having failed to bring out the wounded by horse transport, which he tried first, as you say, he noted the speed of movements of light horse artillery. So he thought he'd try something different. He wanted to minimize the delay in therapy and provide morale-boosting frontline support. So in 1792, on the River Main near Frankfurt, Larry accosted two senior men, one a general, Custine, and the other a quartermaster, a very important guy, Villamanzi, and explained mm -hmm. his ideas of this uh, horse-driven ambulance service. And uh, he realized that the system of evacuation could well mimic the artillery transport system. So he created a few ambulances which went into action around Königsberg. As 1792 came to its end, Larry, in various hard-pressed situations, started to operate and dress the wounded actually in the front line. Another first for Larry, front line support. 1793, of course, Britain declared war on France. And then during one difficult action in the spring of 1793, Larry performed an amputation on the field. This is mm -hmm. really not, not ever recorded before. Uh, except for completion amputations, that sort of thing. But the French army had a burgeoning system of frontline surgical support. And near Mainz, uh, Larry <laughs> did something else. He berated and halted some fleeing French soldiers who were running away from battle and drove off some Prussians who were stripping a few wounded casualties and about to kill them. And Larry mm -hmm. was to treat these men, having driven off their enemies. But anyway, Larry received great acclaim from the convention. That was very important. General Desai became a very capable general under Napoleon. Very good. Yeah, yep. and, and he made great friends with Larry. Um, our surgeon's reputation had him recalled to Paris, where he was to set up his ambulance system in other armies of the Republic. The convention and the terror reigned in Paris, and there was a terrible shake-up and uh, bloodshed and all the medical facilities in France were disrupted and so forth. Now, Larry was given the position of senior medical officer to accompany a force to Corsica, but that didn't happen. So he spent a bit of time pottering around in northern Spain. Mm -hmm. well, let's briefly talk about triage, which seems like a no-brainer to us now, where you treat the most, I guess, uh, violent injuries or, or worse injuries first, and then you kind of work your way down to the not so injured or slight wounds. Why was, I know Larray had some, some, he established a rule in the French army for this, but why was this such a, a revolutionary idea? Well, because I think uh, if you're a doctor on a battlefield, you tend to um, look after your own, look after nearby people, um, mm -hmm. treat uh, officers and senior people. Uh, and really not give it much thought. And mm. it wasn't a completely new issue. I mean, triage is taken from the old French word tria, as you probably know, to separate. But mm -hmm. sophisticated practice that we face today is very different from what Larry conceded. What he did say was that you do need to treat the most seriously injured by the most capable people in the first instance. And that is a very important concept. So yeah. the beginning of triage has to be there. And you have to remember that the concept was described 
briefly in the Edwin Smith papyruses in Egypt during the Holy Roman Empire and in the mm. early 18th century by John Atkins in the British Royal Navy, but it never took off. But I think Larry would have infiltrated his teams with this, and he just emphasised that all serious cases required people like him to operate on them. And right. he said, in true humanitarian Republican spirit, treating the wounded according to the observed gravity of their injuries and the urgency for medical care, regardless of rank or nationality, which is a fine, fine issue, and we all agree with that. But if you look in detail at other surgeons who said this, you'd still find a tendency to treat your own rather than the enemy's first. And not infrequently, Larry did stick true to his principles. He did treat enemy casualties well, and he would refuse to undertake less important duties when faced with an overwhelming workload. Larry had his priorities, no doubt. 1794, Larry first meets Napoleon, and clearly Napoleon was not a scientist, but appreciated and encouraged scientific advancement. I think Napoleon gets a, an unfair rap that he didn't care about the common soldier. But again, at the time, maybe it was a, a royal thing where they didn't care about you know, the common soldiers. They only cared about like the officers and the nobles. Do you think Napoleon was a little different in this, in this case? Well, I think we have to um, say that he did first meet Bonaparte in 1794 and a board of health was created in Italy. He set up his evolving ambulance system. It's now that it's really taking off. And uh, just to mention this system first, had 340 men in three divisions of about 113 men each. Lots of uh, staff, NCOs, drivers, instrument carriers, orderlies, farriers, um, early uh, stretcher bearers. And each division had 12 ambulances, eight two-wheelers and four heavy vehicles. Um, mm -hmm. And Larry really at this time was entering into Bonaparte's glittering entourage at Montebello Castle. Mm -hmm. following all the victories and at Udine in North Italy he put on a show with his ambulances and was very generously placed by General Bonaparte. Yes Bonaparte was keen to evolve culture and science. He was fascinated by these things, was surrounded even at Montebello by scholars, artists and professors and mm -hmm. I, I reckon he had dreams of emulating Alexander of Macedon really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, along those lines, uh, in 1798, Napoleon mm -hmm. begins Egyptian conquest and brings Larray along with him. And the other ever active Larray establishes medical school in Cairo. He studies new afflictions that the French troops encountered in the desert. And he's also wounded at the Siege of Acre, uh, Larray. And there's a famous painting of Napoleon visiting his soldiers that had been infected with a plague. Of all Napoleon's many campaigns, do you think this one needed the most medical care? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll come on to that in a sec. But as you say, at 32, uh, Larry was no doubt fascinated to accompany Napoleon's military and scientific expedition to Egypt to thwart Britain's communication with India and the East. Um, mm -hmm. But Larry, as usual, performed with great efficiency. His first uh, plus point was treating a, a nasty horse kick uh, that was inflicted on Bonaparte's leg by draining the bruise. Mm. He managed cases of ophthalmia, dysentery, and suppurating wounds and ulcers in the intense heat, and that shouldn't be underplayed. Uh, right. Now it was the time that Larry was really assessing the importance of military medicine on his commander. 
He even created uh, mobile litters uh, for soldiers, one each side of, of the uh, of a camel, a light litters, and so the camel could take the uh, wounded out of battle. Um, right. He he was uh, widely praised by General Bonaparte and was given. Uh, he represented the subject of surgery in the Institute of Egypt, which was founded by Bonaparte. Mm -hmm. Then we get the trip up to Syria, which was mm -hmm. an interesting and ill-understood expedition. And Larry uh, worked tirelessly to provide help for civilian and military casualties. <laughs> Interestingly, talking about the former, Jaffa, uh, a street entertainer, an Egyptian with a pet monkey on his shoulder, came for treatment with a head wound, but Larry dressed that. But when he saw the monkey also had a sword cut, he treated the monkey's head. And the <laughs> monkey became very attached to Larry after this. I, also, I, I didn't know about his uh, veterinarian kit as well. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Um, yeah. Toussaint Arigi was an ADC to Marshal Berthier and a relative of Bonaparte. And he was shot through the neck um, and blood was spouting from his one of his great vessels in the neck. And um, Larry uh, praised the young grenadier of the guard who'd placed a finger in each wound to <laughs> stop the hemorrhage. But he mm. dragged him. But the thing about this story is that Larry took little notice of the shrapnel exploding above his head and his hat and parts of his clothing were riddled with... Uh, fragment uh, injuries. So he was obviously a fairly fearless guy in action. Um, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, and just relating to your earlier story, you know, he's scaring away the, the Prussians that were trying to strip uh, injured soldiers. Like yeah, he carried yeah. a sword. He carried a sword and he, he would go into battle when, when needed. Well, don't forget all medical officers in all uh, countries carried weapons because they were not protected, as you know, till 1860s by the Red Cross and all the rest of it. Right. So, right. yeah, of course, they were armed and they did have to fight sometimes uh, at Yale, mm -hmm. I mentioned. But um, at Abukir, Marshal Murat, um, this flamboyant guy you know about, was shot through the yeah. neck also. And yep. uh, Larry had to feed him by a tube put into the wound of his neck, which mm -hmm. he eventually. And he was also present at. Uh, the post-mortem done on General Kleber, who was assassinated in Egypt after Napoleon had left. Anyway, he was invited to go back to France with his uh, general, and he refused. And he said, my job's to stick here with all the wounded and sick in uh, Europe. I can't go back now. And Napoleon had prematurely fled back to France for other political reasons. And Larry didn't get the best press for this. And he wasn't in Paris when he got back later. Uh, to receive the duly merited honours from the Egyptian campaign. But that's a yeah. good, good thing that Larry did. He was true to his principles and his patience. But Yeah, and I think that's a lot of bravery. Like when many of the officers were clamoring to get out of Egypt and go back with Napoleon, he, he turned it down. He didn't, yeah. like you said, he, he wanted to stay with the soldiers. That's, that's, that's amazing. I mean, almost the same thing happened in Russia, didn't it, after Moscow? You know, same thing. Correct. Upon Larry's final return to France in 1801, he remained attached to Napoleon, becoming chief of staff, uh, chief surgeon to the Imperial Guard. And I think that's a pretty lofty position, don't you think, to be in charge of Napoleon's personal bodyguard's health? Yeah, it was. I mean, when he got back, he was uh, uh, mollified a bit to be made um, 
at the Tuileries, the first consul, which Napoleon was by then, giving him medical care of the consular guard. It was rather less than Larry had hoped, but he got a great honour, as you say. Anyway, he made the first consul's immense energy for reorganising systems and resuming teaching duties at the Val de Grasse Hospital in Paris, establishing courses of military instruction, engaging in surgical education and so on. And at this time, uh, about 1803-4, a lot of the um, educational facilities in medicine were re-established and Larry had to join in with these new systems and he had to obtain his doctorate in medicine to comply. So he then mm -hmm. got his uh, doctorate of medicine was Dr. Larry. In 1804, mm -hmm. as you know, Bonaparte was crowned emperor. He instigated the new order of the Légion d'honneur. Mm -hmm. and Larry had one of the first medals, and uh, so he was pleased about that. But a year later, France had to stagger under the resounding defeat of the Franco-Spanish uh, navies, and Bonaparte abandoned, for other reasons, his plans to evade England, invade England. Mm -hmm. Then followed the actions at Ulm and Austerlitz, adding more and more jewels to the emperor's crown. And Larry uh, now was still medical chief to the now 10,000 strong imperial rather than consular guard. He worked hard for Napoleon. He doesn't strike me as a blind follower of Napoleon, like um, like a Duroc or a Bessier. Do you think he would somewhat resentful that all these soldiers he builds relationships with were getting slaughtered out on the field? Or do you think it was just part of his job to take care of these guys? It, you don't read an awful lot about Larry's personal view of the emperor's politics and strategies. I think mm. he's often too busy with his own worries and his own business to 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 write about that. I may mm. be about this, but that's what I felt. But I think that um, he had plenty to do always, and yeah. always looking for honors, promotion, and more money, and so forth. Yeah, well. Uh... Pursuant to that, uh, in 1807, during the horrific Battle of Eilau, Larry had set up a field hospital and Colin Corps, uh, was one of Napoleon's top aides, attempted to commandeer the hospital to be repurposed for the emperor's quarters. Larry refused to move his hospital and Colin Corps threatened to inform Napoleon of this. And Larry replied, quote, do as you please, but you may be sure that his majesty will decide in my favor, end quote. And sure enough, Napoleon agreed with Larry, saying his wounded soldiers take priority over the emperor's comfort. I think this is two things. Larry knew his emperor. And the other thing is Napoleon realized that his troops were and, and that his troops health were top priority. Don't you think? I absolutely agree. And I have to remember that Napoleon was looking for brownie points as much as Larry. And I think to have uh, commandeered a house full of sick and injured who'd have to be moved out for his own headquarters would have been very bad publicity. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, his relationship with Larry was enough to know what was right in the public way. Yeah. So 1807 heralded this new coalition against the Bonaparte regime and now facing the Russian and Prussian forces on East Prussia on the frozen wastes of Eilau. Um, he had his hospital back at this big house uh, to the rear. And as you say, General Louis Collincourt, master of the king's horse and household, demanded the use. But Larry pointed out the chalked word hospital on the door and refused to give it up. 
Mm-hmm. Calocor reported Larry to the emperor, who conceded to Larry, of course, and he therefore attained a, a moral ascendancy. But that would have annoyed Calocor, and Larry did upset quite a few people in this way. Not that he did wrong, but he knew how to make enemies and was very stubborn and forthright in the way he did things. Anyway, his frontline dressing station was a huge open barn, and despite the cold, I was very interested that Larry seemed to be able to perform his digital surgical work without the cold freezing his hands off, which was pretty impressive. He was threatened by a Russian force, but he decided to remain to the last with his wounded men. Luckily, the Russians were beaten off by General Holtpool, and he had a wounded thigh, came to Larry for amputation. The general refused Larry's advice and died three days later. Mm. Um, (laughs) Another story uh, of innovation, really, during surgical procedure was a colonel uh, was undergoing an amputation. When the operation started, he was shaking uncontrollably and so hindering the operation because his limb wouldn't keep still and he just was a total wreck, understandably. Larry mm-hmm. slapped hard on the face and the furious colonel soon realised the operation had been completed and all was forgiven. <laughs> <laughs> Larry said, I was trying to distract you so you wouldn't notice. I was Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, then after that, he was instructed to embalm the body of General Dalman, who died in the Battle of Eilau. But Larry protested that he needed to be with his wounded more than doing this service. Let's talk briefly about antiseptic, if you don't mind. I know basically if you're going to have something amputated, they would give you a shot of brandy as your painkiller, but that probably wasn't a good idea because alcohol makes you, it thins your blood. So was there any kind of antiseptic at this time? Um, There is no record of Larry being particularly clean and washing his wounds carefully. He may well have done. He was a rapid surgeon and he probably did clean out the wounds of debris and cut off dead tissue. Um, Mm -hmm. There was no specific administration of alcohol, both internally or applying externally. Um, uh, and, and obviously, the bacterial theory hadn't been introduced, so it couldn't be acted upon. No, I think it's um, the speed of operation and being relatively clean gave him optimum results for the time. Yeah. Um, moving along, um, there's another intriguing incident which happens during the invasion of Spain with Marshal Long. I think it's 1808 or 1809. Do you want to tell this story? I think it's very interesting. Yeah, it's 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 a good story. Um, in 1808, Larry followed Bonaparte into Spain, which was his second visit, actually. Remember, he went there briefly earlier. Uh, the emperor wanted to replace the Bourbon regime, put his brother Joseph on the throne. Spain erupted, Peninsula War, Bonaparte's Spanish ulcer, and eventually... Sir Arthur Wellesley landed in August 1808 at Mondego Bay, just to put in context. And the Peninsula War, from the British point of view, had begun. Larry had to treat Marshall Land near Tolosa in later 1808. And Land's, as you say, had fallen uh, under his horse, which had slipped. And the horse continued to struggle on top of the Marshall, which was uh, further compounding the trauma. The marshal's chest and abdomen were severely bruised. There was probably some damage to 
tissues uh, and organs at the back of Lamb's body, so, you know, the kidneys, the spleen, that sort of thing, and bruising in the, what we call the retroperitoneal space. And if this happens, you can get what's called a paralytic ileus. The guts just stop to work. The body, domen swells, you've got a silent, paralyzed abdomen, and it's very dangerous because it's painful, you get dehydrated, and you die, really, basically. Right. Clinical shock. So Larry treated the soldier with a, a freshly killed flayed sheepskin and wrapped it round him, rubbing on emollients and applying gentle enemas, which is probably an unreasonable thing to do. He's treated with no food by mouth. And he remembered this treatment from the time he'd been in Newfoundland, which he noted had been a method used by the Inuits. And uh, with only fluids for sustenance and enemas and time, the marshal improved. But interestingly, he passed some bloodstained urine afterwards, and that means that his kidneys had definitely been traumatized. I was doing some research on this. I guess sheepskin's like a natural, uh, it keeps bacteria out, but also keeps your body, it like helps you know, skin recover and organs recover. Uh, I guess there's some sort of natural uh, thing about the sheepskin, but it's just fascinating that he learned about it in Newfoundland and then applied it you know, later on in his life. It's difficult to think today of a physiological reason for its success, but certainly the marshal would have been kept warm and at rest. And those are the two things, uh, with God's good grace, will cure the patient ultimately, providing there's no leak of gut contents or peritonitis. Right. But uh, after this, I'm just, just sort of sure. finished off Larry in Spain. He went on to, uh, with a guard to Madrid and then as soon as John Moore fled out of the country to retreat to Corona, um, he traveled on with a pursuing army, chasing the English leopard into the sea. And he got as far as Astorga up in Galicia and uh, northwest Spain, and then Valladolid, where he cared for English sick and wounded soldiers, as well as the French. But in doing so, Larry caught typhus, which was with the Spanish army, and went back to convalesce in Paris. Now, uh, later in 1809, uh, Napoleon's back on uh, war footing with Austria. Uh, Austria, again, is trying to topple the emperor with some reforms they made of, in their armies. And uh, the Battle of Aspern Essling, um, Marshal Lon, right before the Battle of Bagram, Marshal Lon is struck in the knees by a cannonball. And it's a controversial decision as Lon's later died from post surgery infection. The controversy was they they weren't sure if they should amputate or not. I think Larry was arguing with a fellow surgeon about it. Um, do you think they they made the right decision there? Yeah, well, Larry had set out from Paris in 1809 at the battle you mentioned. Uh, Lan actually went to grieve over the death of a close friend at the battle and sat on a tree trunk with his head in his hands, sitting there, a ricochet, uh, round shot, smashed his left knee, tore muscles on the right thigh. And Larry was very distressed because this was another great friend, like Desai had become a good friend. And he actually went to look for other opinions. He sought two second opinions. And one of them was against an amputation and the other was for, and Larry was for. So he ended up doing the operation. I think the indication for surgery was correct because uh, damage to a major joint is an absolute indication for amputation at these times. And soon, as soon as the mental state of the patient and a bit of fluid redistribution occurs, you get that leg off. And that's what he did. 
but he died from sepsis on the sixth day, and that could have happened without surgery and would have done. I don't think Larry made a bad judgment. He was seeking other opinions and perhaps arguing with the one against amputation. I think Larry made a good call on that operation. The only thing that he was worried about was losing his friend and making a wrong decision, as thought by others, uh, on this uh, very famous and uh, prominent soldier. But he, I think he did the right thing. And at this battle, after he'd operated on lands, he began to increase significantly his experience of his favoured operation, which was disarticulation at the shoulder joint. In other words, removing the whole arm at the shoulder for severe damage. This was a, an operation he did fast and well. There's another great story from this battle, and maybe you can confirm it. I've read about it once or twice. Napoleon, because he was in such a rush to get to the, the Austrian army, they didn't have enough food brought up in time for his soldiers. So Larry came up with a solution for his wounded soldiers, right? <laughs> well, at the same battle, Larry was short of sustenance and rations for his men. And I think this is, a, this is his commitment at its best. This isn't for publicity, you know, mm -hmm. but not to be thwarted. He did prove innovative. And what he did was to use recently deceased horses meat to make soup initially. And the lack of salt necessitated flavoring the meat with gunpowder. The broth was cooked in cuirasses or breastplates used as pots and other and other vessels. Mm -hmm. But as the horse flesh supply dried up, and you do need scores of animals to feed divisions or brigades, you know, it, it, you need your butchers. And as the horse flesh dried up, Larry had some nearby picketed horses destroyed and brushing off the complaints of General Boudet, to whom the horses belonged. <laughs> <laughs> But he wouldn't have got very far if he complained about that to Napoleon, I guess. Right. Anyway, after this sanguinary battle, Larry's impressive results in treating 1,200 guard casualties, 600 were returned to duty. Mm -hmm. And after this, uh, Napoleon made uh, Dominique Larry a baron of the empire. And he came back to France <laughs> and then he attended court functions, devoted his energies to the guard hospital, teaching, writing his three volume memoirs. And then his master declared war on Russia. In 12, uh, he accompanies Napoleon's invasion of Russia and finally get to the bloody battle of Bordino, which he, it says he had to perform 200 amputations in that one day, which I can't even imagine. Do you think, and you're, you're a surgeon, do you ever have, I mean, do you think Larry had PTSD? Well, I can, I'll roll that all up into, into my reply. I think that he was glad to be made surgeon en chef to this grand army of nearly half a million men. Mm -hmm. He's going to get a lot of trouble with many sick and suffering. And there was a lack of doctors. There was a lack of medical supplies and transport. There was a lack of food. And the actions of Vitebsk, Krasno, Smolensk, and so on delivered huge numbers of casualties. Mm -hmm. And his shortages of dressings and other items were to pose a huge challenge. But Larry ordered parchment rolls from a monastery to be used as splints, he used paper scrambled up for bedding and bark fibre from trees for dressing. In September, as you say, the Battle of Borodino was contested. Larry's teams were stretched to the limit. You have to remember that there were very few doctors here. They had to conscript medical students, local doctors. They were overwhelmed. They had to treat 9,000 casualties. Larry treated his teams. And they reckon 
after the battle, the peasants buried 50,000 bodies after yeah. this Pyrrhic victory. And it was recorded by Larry that he did these 224 hours at amputations. I think we need to just look at that for a minute. I reckon an amputation takes 15 to 20 minutes at the least. Remove a leg in three to five minutes. Removing a leg is not an amputation. It's removing the leg. You have to tidy the wound. You have to pick up the blood vessels, tie them off, stop all the bleeding, loosen the tourniquet, check the bleeding's doing, tighten up the tourniquet, dress the wound and stitch, tape it shut, bandages it. So 15 to 25 minutes. It's not just limb removal. That means that... How could he possibly have done one operation, one amputation every seven minutes? And I think this is a, one example, really, of Larry's exaggeration. And, uh, you know, it's getting into the bad part of Larry, really. But um, he, he didn't probably get, he does sometimes give accreditation to his team members. He does. It wasn't him, it was his teams. And I think many of these driven men are so prone to. Exaggeration. Now, have you got PTSD? That's a good question. No, I don't think he's got PTSD because he doesn't talk of nightmares. He doesn't talk of any disease symptoms or exhaustion. Um, He obviously got extremely tired, but we know that he boasted about himself being one of the robust, most robust soldiers in the army. He didn't worry about upsetting people. And um, I think on the retreat from Moscow, he describes himself as one of the most robust men in the army. That's a quote. I think he's showing considerable narcissistic features by now. Mm. And uh, he was an extremely talented organiser and surgeon and a great role model. But he was vain and immodest and confrontational. There is no doubt about that. But I don't really get the impression that he was war damaged like some men. Yeah, uh, he, he reached Moscow with 20,000 sick and wounded soldiers. When he left, he left 1,200 behind. Right. He survived by walking. But he said, if you stop, sit down by a fire and and warm up your legs, you get uh, uh, damage to your circulation and you keep moving. And he always had a thermometer pinned onto the outside of his coat. And he got to Beresina and there was such respect for him, they carried him shoulder high across the river Beresina so that he could treat casualties on the other side of the river on the retreat. Yeah. Anyway. Just fascinating. Fascinating. He he staggers back to France. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, in 1813, Larry continues to serve Napoleon in the German campaign and all the way up to the emperor's abdication in 1814. He even offers to accompany Napoleon to his exile on Elba, but the emperor refuses the offer. I just... He just he not many people have a work ethic similar to Napoleon's, but he's he's in the ballpark. It sounds like he's working hard the whole empire. I think these two men uh, recognized and uh, admired each other's commitment. Um, the object of their commitment sometimes varies, <laughs> but they <laughs> did cons- serve well at, in the, the, the campaigns in Saxony. And after Bautzen, he saved the lives of forty-eight young recruits. Because uh, of course Bonaparte was recruiting younger and younger men as they were uh, young men of France were eaten up. But 48 men were accused of self-mutilation, and Larry took down details of every single man and uh, actually concluded that these were accidents through poor training, poor arms handling, and he managed to convince Napoleon of this, and these men were pardoned and uh, let off and so on. 
Well, after Dresden, of course, and Leipzig, particularly, Larry was made honorary surgeon to his majesty. That was something he, he not the personal surgeon, but the honorary surgeon to his majesty. And he wanted that post. Mm -hmm. But he survived and worked during some of Napoleon's brilliant last ditch military actions in France, Crayon, Montereux, Léon, finally Archis Au. And then when he abdicated, as you say, Napoleon uh, didn't allow him, Larry, to follow him into exile. He came back as Inspector General Chief of the Armies, first Surgeon of the Guard and of the Hospital of the Guard, and uh, commenced, I suppose one would, uh, ingratiating himself to the restored plump King Louis XVIII. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, as as his as the marshals and generals were too, because Louis XVIII was now the the king sitting on the throne, and you want to ingratiate yourself with that person. Yeah. Um, but in 1815, Napoleon returns, and we have the Battle of Waterloo, where Larry is again performing at a Herculean level. Do you want to talk about his his efforts that day? Yeah, um, it's uh, he would have been based in the middle at the back at uh, Belle Alliance, and the, I know there was a big ambulance stationed there. And of course, I hadn't really said it before, but one has to remember that the concept of an ambulance is a system of care, not vehicles. So you mm -hmm. have all these other um, ancillaries that I did mention. But anyway. Um, so he worked hard. He was seen uh, probably through a telescope working on the field. And uh, apparently um, uh, Wellington's orders were not to fire at him, uh, pointing out the immaculate dedication and bravery of the man to his charges. I, and he, he said, you know, um, the courage and devotion of an age that's no longer ours. And I think what he meant was that Wellington had been witness to many misbehaviours and poor judgments and lack of commitment and delays and inefficiency, but he obviously admired Larry and just was feeling that that sort of commitment was maybe passing a bit here and there. I don't know. But yeah. I, I think you have to be very careful with the story. It smacks to me as an apocryphal bit, but... Yeah, you it, know. it could be. It could be. But I think, like you said earlier, like, you know, medical doctors were not free from being shot at or killed on the battlefield by the enemy troops you know they were they were not protected by any kind of law or rule right it was open season yeah well theoretically they should have had sanctuary but as you say particularly the prussians were horrendous in their management of uh, wounded frenchmen mm. well uh speaking of the prussians after the french lose the battle larry is taken prisoner by the prussians who manhandled him stripped him and we're about to execute him on the spot. What happens to our good doctor? <laughs> well, he gets a head wound when he's riding off the field, when all is done, and he's knocked off his horse and uh, stunned. And he gets up and taken prisoner, and he gets on a horse again, being towed away when he escapes again. And again, he's captured by another picket, Prussian picket. They arrest him, probably quite um, annoyed, and took him to uh, an officer, who wondered if he was actually Napoleon because he was dressed by Napoleon. <laughs> um, actually, they were actually about to shoot him. And I believe they actually had a man putting a blindfold on his eyes who happened to be a medical man who knew Larry. Mm -hmm. And uh, Larry was then spared and sent to Blucher, whose son Larry had 
operated on previously mm -hmm. uh, after a battle. And so Blucher actually said, look, you go off to Louvain, which actually was a Prussian military hospital after the battle, and go and recover there. Here are 12 Frederick door. They were sort of like guineas. And off you go. And eventually, mm -hmm. Harry got permission to um, come back to Brussels to help with the injured there. And this, this was clearly a man who, at the end of his career, whatever his failures were, was much revered by so many people. I just think he was revered by all three armies, the British, the Prussians, and, and the, the French. Well, you have to remember that uh, a lot of the, um, they weren't really Belgians then, they were citizens of the Kingdom of Holland, but the Belgians and Dutch had all served in the French army, and the doctors would all be trained and knew Larry. Right. Prussians certainly would have known about him, as did, did our men. And many of them met him after. Yeah, the he's, he served in Spain, he served in Russia, he served at all the fronts. So yeah. 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 Uh, what becomes of the good doctor after the downfall of Napoleon? I know he wrote several books on his medical studies. Yeah, um, after Bonaparte's exile, um, where Bonaparte was tended by various British and Irish surgeons, um, Larry had been blacklisted back home because he'd gone back to the emperor. And he managed to retain his position of chief surgeon to the new Royal Guard Hospital, because it wasn't the Imperial Guard anymore. He was offered posts in the US, interestingly, Russia and Brazil to take charge of military medical services of their armies. He refused. Mm. In 1820, the Academy uh, Academy of Medicine was created with Larry amongst the founder members, and he eventually made a full member of the Army Medical Council. He was delighted, wrote his memoirs, and between 1800 and 1840, he published around 30 written works. Mm. Yeah, and I think it's amazing that he had these offers to go overseas, but even when he was impoverished, he turned them down. He wanted to stay in France. Well, of course, he had family, he had two children, his wife, and uh, yeah. he must have established a, a civilian practice, you see, as well. Yeah. Well, he passes in 1842 from pneumonia, and I want to get to his legacy, but I want to talk real quick. There's so many things to his legacy. There's a great quote from Napoleon calling Larry, quote, the most virtuous man I have ever known. If the army were to erect a monument to any one man, it should be that of Larry. All the wounded are his family, end quote. What do you think his legacy is, not only for France, but for the world? Well, just if we can deal with Bonaparte's, he wrote an extended praise of Larry, and he left Larry a legacy of 100,000 francs. He only got mm. half of it. But when Napoleon III, Bonaparte's cousin, was uh, reinstated, uh, Napoleon III gave Larry's son Hippolyte the balance to found a school in the village of Bodian, Larry's birthplace, which was nice. Oh, that's nice. I don't know. Yeah, the most virtuous man in public and in his performance as a public servant. I think that Larry deserves that epithet. And uh, he, he was just such a great committed surgeon. And he had little heart after all this war, like Wellington, really, after Waterloo. He'd had enough. But he, he must have continued in his military care and teaching and private practice. He was rather autocratic with his kids, apparently. Um, mm -hmm. He acquired a country residence, was elected onto the triumvirate board of the Council of Army Medicine, and also became chief surgeon at Anvalide. 
So, and then Bonaparte dies. He's reinterred, his body brought back from St. Helena to Anvalide, where he's now magnificently entombed in pink granite. And mm -hmm. in the procession for the reburial, an elderly Larry leaning on in the arm of his son, trudging along a bent figure in the freezing weather behind his revered master's cortege. No doubt his mind was full of triumphal and tragic memories. So, um, and just to finish his story before we get on to the legacy, two years later, Larry sets out to look at some North African hospitals under the auspices of the French Empire. Um, and when he's away in Africa looking at these uh, military hospitals with his son, the news of his wife's illness hurries him back to France. But on the 25th of July, 1842, at Lyon, um, Larry dies of bronchopneumonia the very day that a letter arrives from Larry's daughter announcing uh, his wife's death. And he's got this legacy. Um, he is definitely one of the most prestigious military surgeons and doctors because of innovation, because of commitment, um, because of realizing priorities and organizational skills, getting supportive surgical support to the front, getting people out so that even though primitive triage was practiced, it could be carried out. Huge in energy, great surgical skills, the ability to do right, teach well, and his example was always to instill courage and confidence in those who worked and fought with him. He'd taken surgical care right to the front, a service so vital today in modern armies. Yeah, I know there's a medical award given by NATO to people who provide, to doctors who provide um, improvements in the provision of healthcare on NATO missions, and it's called the Larry Award, which I think is pretty impressive. Yeah, it is. It is well-deserved. It's hard to quantify the benefit. I mean, the guy probably saved hundreds, if not thousands of lives, not only from the battlefield, but his improvements from what he, what, what came before, don't you think? I do. I think... You know how history is always being revised these days. And reading between the lines, I think we have to understand that the ambulances weren't universally available. Money ran out. Percy's stretcher-bearing Carter was short-lived. Um, Larry was very much looking after the pick of the French army. I mean, a, a little army on its own, fifteen to 20,000 Imperial Guard. Um, mm. But the point is that the examples there... We talk about it today, and it must have permeated all down the service de santé. It must have done. Therefore, he has to be given credit for innovation and frontline care and commitment. Um, I, I've written a book on a chap called Guthrie, who was the guy who was nicknamed the English Larry. He's a very robust character, occasionally confrontational, completely aghast at quite a lot of things that his colleagues did, just like Larry. He has very much the same sort of qualities, except perhaps he wasn't quite so vainglorious, but he was technically a very able surgeon. He became president of uh, the English College of Surgeons three times. His name was George Guthrie. Guthrie. So Guthrie and Larry probably are the two men who really are outstanding in the French wars, and they lead us uh, into a great dream of admiration and examples to follow. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I recommend my listeners... Uh, Please check out Mick Crumplin's book on Guthrie and all of his other books on uh, medical care during this period. And I really thank you for that biography on Larry. I think that was terrific. And I learned a lot. And hopefully my listeners did as well.